time did you get to bed last night? I didn't sleep much last night. <laughs> a little antsy, but um, I'm in early morning and a good pregame skate, so I'm ready to go. How many text messages, emails, so on and so forth? Uh, a lot. A lot. <laughs> An unnamed number. <laughs> Did you replay the game-winning goal in your mind at all last night? Oh, absolutely. I, I replay every game in my mind after, so uh, it's, it's hard to focus, but um, something you got to do and you got to take care of and uh, get ready for Saturday. Your teammates. <laughs> After, after Yale beat North Dakota 4-1 to to win the Western Regional in the NCAA tournament in 2013, I actually had to go to a Sabres versus Capitals game. And I remember driving there, and there's this corner. It's a corner that everyone has near their house, right, that you, you feel like you spend a year of your life at this corner when it's all said and done, just waiting there for the traffic lights to turn. And I remember being at that corner and thinking, Yell's going to the Frozen Four. This is happening. April 11th. They have a game. They have a game on April 11th this year. And uh, that game on April 11th is what this podcast is about. Uh, welcome to part three of a three-part documentary series about the 2013 NCAA Ice Hockey National Champion Yale Bulldogs. I want to thank again Kenny Agostino and Jesse Root for being a part of part one of this story. I want to thank... Anthony Day and Josh Balsh being a part of part two. And I also want to thank uh, Chip Melafronte from the New Haven Register for also being a part of part two. Uh, quick intro here, and then we're going to get back to Chip, who's going to join us again for part three here. This is what the uh, the schedule looks like. In a minute, we'll take a break. We'll come back, and we'll see what it was like to be a reporter, a beat reporter who covers two teams and preparing to go cover both of them at the Frozen Four. So we'll get about 15 minutes of chip in. Uh, and then after chip, uh, we will have the captain of the team, Andrew Miller, uh, on uh, the podcast. And also uh, Mitch Wittick, a future Yale captain, uh, will be on the show as well. Mitch scored the first goal uh, in Game 3. Uh, of this journey, the national semifinal, and of course Andrew scored the third uh, dramatic goal, which he will describe uh, step for step. And then after that, uh, I will be back uh, to make a big announcement about part four, uh, which I promise you is going to be one of the greatest podcasts about Yale hockey ever. Uh, So, uh, but it had to be. I mean, if you're doing a podcast about the game where Yale wins a national championship. You better bring it, and I think we do. So I'll preview that uh, after Chip uh, and after the guys. Uh, so let's take a break. Let's get right into this. Let's take a break, and we'll be right back uh, with Chip Melafronte from the New Haven Register. <laughs> Oh, 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 
Our first guest today is a beat writer for the Yale and Quinnipiac men's ice hockey teams, and he covers them for the New Haven Register. He joined us on part two of this podcast documentary, and he's nice enough to join us on part three as well. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Chip Malafronte. So Yale's in the Frozen Four, Quinnipiac's in the Frozen Four. You cover two teams, and they're both going to Pittsburgh. What what is the time like for you? What are those two weeks like? Like this is where it, I, I really yeah, want to get it, into you a little bit. Like what what is it like for you in those two weeks? The logistics, the preparation. What stories are you hunting? Like what did you do those two weeks before Pittsburgh? Yeah, it's uh, you know it's it's almost a blur. Um, you know, I, I remember just the fact that both of those teams had gotten to the frozen four. I remember thinking how you know, it was so improbable because if you just go back a few years earlier, uh, you know, Quinnipiac is a, is a young division one program. Um, they had been in Atlantic hockey until 2005, 2006 season. Um, you know, how quickly they had progressed. Uh, you know, that was part of the story, how, how quickly that this team had adjusted and become a national power. Um, Yale had really, really struggled uh, in the early part of uh, of the 2000s, and you know, I can remember, uh, you know, one of Tim Taylor's last seasons. I think that they went five and 25. Uh, you know, his last season, they weren't very competitive at all. Um, you know, and then uh, you know, Keith was able to turn that program around quickly. So it was really, you know, the, the story was about how quickly these teams had had come from mediocrity and really being putting out some bad hockey teams, at least on Yale's end, to becoming Frozen Four teams. I can remember being being stunned by that and trying to uncover those stories. Like, how did this happen so quickly? The recruiting stories. How did they? You know, how was Yale able to secure the the, the Andrew Millers and the Kenny Agostinos and uh, you know the uh, Antoine Laganiers and, and those types of guys? Um, you know, and it was the same for Quinnipiac, and Quinnipiac had kind of had a, a similar formula that they had followed for for almost from the time that they had gotten into Division One hockey. Um, they had the pipeline out to the British Columbia Hockey League, and they were able to bring some of those guys in, some of those less heralded guys. You know, they weren't winning big recruiting battles, but they were getting good players from out there. And, and uh, you know, Rand Pecknell those always had a pretty good eye for talent, and, and he knew the guys who could run his system. So a lot of my time was. Uh, you know, just trying to spent how to trying to figure out how these teams had had turned it around so quickly, um, but it was a busy time. I mean, it was really, really a, a blur, and uh, you know, just just the fact that that it was happening. I remember being just just so shocked to be in this position. From you know, I, I would I would go to cover a playoff series, and you know, just you know, hope Yale would would win a game and make it a three game series and, and make it a little bit exciting there. Uh, to the point where we're here, and, and we've got two teams with a legitimate chance to win a national championship. It was it was a it was a pretty incredible time uh, for me as a as a journalist. And with them being on opposite sides, obviously in your mind you have to be thinking, "Wow, there's a chance the two teams that I cover could play each other for a national championship." Like that has to yeah, be on the exactly. back of your mind, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was, it was, right. yeah, and you know, UMass Lowell, I thought was going to give Yale a tough time, and that was a team that had won the Hockey East regular season title. They had won the uh, the tournament championship. Uh, you know, Hockey East is, is clearly a, an outstanding league, and for a team to have won both of that 
as convincingly as they did. I thought that they were going to give Yale a problem. At the same time, UMass Lowell didn't have a lot of postseason history. Yale had actually had more postseason experience. I think the guys in Yale's roster had played uh, more NCAA tournament games than the, than the UMass Lowell guys at the time. So uh, there was no way that uh, you know that, that, that Yale had, was going to get to this point and and not play well. Um, and as, as I'm sure as you, you talked to the guys yesterday, the, the way that that UMass Lowell game went down was, to me, was astounding because Yale was just so superior and they dominated that game, especially when it got to that third period in overtime. I remember watching this and thinking, this is the this is the Hockey East champs. I'd like, I mean, it was just it was amazing to me how much better in uh, you know faster Yale was as a, as a team, and they, they, you know they they really made UMass Lowell look like a second-rate team. Yeah, and when you think, if you look at that look at that game, we'll get into it now, in the third period, uh, UMass Lowell only had three shots, and none of them were in, like, about the last nine minutes of the period, and then they didn't get any shots in the overtime. That's about 16 or so minutes of play where they're not getting even a shot on the goal. Yeah, and, and I think it was, uh, you know, the, the, they, they had kind of made a little bit of a resurgence there in the second period. They, they had fallen behind 2 nothing. They right. got a couple of goals in the second, gotten themselves back in the game. And those goals were 14 they, seconds apart. So it's like really like right, they had a good right. minute, right? You know what I mean? Right. It was like that one minute, but yeah. And and again, I, I my memory isn't isn't great here, Steve. I, I want to say that, uh, that Jeff Malcolm had, did he get run? Did he yes. get his legs taken out uh-huh. from him right before those two goals? Yep. Okay. Yep. And again, it was a similar play. I remember thinking that you know, seeing that play that had happened in Princeton, he had he had gotten run, and that was a, a play that had kept him out for five games. And I remember seeing it again and thinking the worry there that did he get hurt again? And okay, he's going to stay in, but they were able to get two goals on him pretty quickly, and wondering if he was still 100%. So there was that, you know, a little period of doubt there, but then, you know, all that went out the window because, you know, Yale took care of the rest. He really, they really, it was puck possession and speed, and, you know, UMass Lowell just, they had no legs, and Yale was just completely outclassed them for those last, the third period in overtime. Take me through what you recall of the overtime winner. Uh, I was I was excited, and I know I'm probably I probably shouldn't say that I'm supposed to be a neutral guy, uh, you know. But uh, Yale was a team I, I've covered Yale since uh, you know since 1999-2000 season. That was my first year covering Yale hockey. I'm a New Haven guy. I grew up around here. I followed Yale athletics, you know, since I was a kid, uh, and I remember being pretty excited seeing that seeing Andrew Miller kind of break three break break through and score that goal. Um, I was happy for Keith. I was happy for the players who I'd gotten to know over the course of that season. And, uh, you know, I was excited for myself because I there was going to be a, a chance for me to cover a national championship game, and, and Yale had put themselves in it. And then it was, all right, well, let's see if Quinnipiac can, can take care of business and, and make this an all-New Haven final, and, and how great would that be? I, I remember I remember being pretty excited when, when Andrew scored that goal. You know, the, the fun kind of lore of that goal is, is Car- Carson Cooper makes the pass to Miller. And, you know, we look back on that tournament and we think Jesse, Kenny, and Ago, right? That's the line. But Jesse was having right. cramps. Uh, and he kind of described in part one about how he had injured his shoulder, so he was wearing like a flak underneath his uniform. And it was so hot in the building that he was having trouble all night staying dehydrated. So... He went out initially for that shift, uh, but came right off because his legs locked up, and that's why Carson 
is even out there to win that battle and, and make that play to Miller through the neutral zone. Yeah, pretty pretty unbelievable. And Carson, uh, just a, a freshman, uh, you know, being able to, to make that play. Um, but, uh, you know, Andrew Miller, I thought, was, you know, clearly one of the best players in the country, one of the most overlooked guys in the country. Uh, but I do remember, you know, seeing him get that puck on his stick and, and get some room and thinking to myself, you know what, this is probably over. This is the guy that, that that was the guy you wanted with the puck on his stick going one-on-one with a with an outstanding goaltender for UMass Lowell, by the way, Connor Hellebayuk, who was, I believe, was, uh, was a Hobie Baker finalist that year. Uh, his numbers were, were pretty ridiculous, and he had single-handedly kept his team in it that whole right. game. It's the only reason we're um, in overtime is because of that kid right Exactly. The yeah. only reason that they were in overtime, I think he finished with 44, 45 saves, and uh, – but uh, you know, seeing that 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 was the moment right there, and a, and a guy like Andrew Miller, a you know, special player like that, thinking that you know it's over here, you know, that this is this is his chance, and he's going to finish it right here, and, and clearly he did. So it's an unbelievable performance by Yale that night. It's a dominating performance by Quinnipiac that night. I watched a little bit of that game, but I mean, they were clearly the be- clearly the better team out there. Kind of almost a no sweater for them. You know, no sweat. And again, I want to ask you, when you leave console that night, to take me through the that next day, Friday. Like, what's in your head? You know, are you talking to editors? What, what are you, what do, you, what are you prioritizing? Like, how do you prepare when you're? Because this is a unique position. When you're a beat writer for two college hockey teams and they're playing each other in the national championship game. What does one do on Friday before that game? How do you prepare for that professionally? Yeah, obviously we, you know, we as a staff knew that this was a big deal uh, you know, for, for our readership area, for, for the state of Connecticut, really. Uh, I mean, that we were going to be the, the, the number one media outlet out there. Um, you know, there were some other newspapers and a couple of the local TV stations that sent reporters out there. You know, but the New Haven Register, that we, you know, we, we were the one media outlet that covers these guys religiously. You know, we're at every, every home game for, uh, uh, for both of those guys. Uh, even when there's conflicts, we, we've got the other one covered with, with writers. Um, so we know, we knew that this, that was going to be a big deal. So I was actually, uh, you know, I was actually one of four. We sent four guys out there. We sent myself and, a, and another writer, our college sports editor, Bill Cloutier, made the trip. We sent our own photographer, Peter Castellino, uh, who got some phenomenal shots that weekend uh, that we were able to, to use. And uh, we also sent out an editor, uh, our assistant sports editor, Mike Wolschlager, made the trip as well. And he was a guy who was there in the press box, and you know we were able to, to bounce ideas off of him. And, and you know he was also able to kind of edit stories and get them up right away. We did a lot of video work. He was able to edit video and, uh, and get that stuff up online. So we were pretty well covered. You know, I, I, it was not a one-man show by me. I had a lot of help out there. Those guys did great work. Um, the thing I remember most about uh, Thursday night um, is that we were there late. Uh, we... we we all came in one car. The four of us uh, had rented a car and driven out to Pittsburgh, and uh, you know we didn't really have a way to get back home, so we needed to, to wait for everybody to get their work done before we were able to get back to the hotel. And I remember it was probably 2 o'clock in the morning uh, before we finally were able to pack up and get back to that hotel, and then we needed to be back at the Console Energy Center, I think at 9 o'clock in the morning the next morning. So it was literally we had you know maybe – three or four good hours to get sleep 
and then we had to get back there to, to, to cover the media day. And I just I remember being really tired. Um, you know, it had been a, a long night. It was an early morning, and there was a ton of work to do. Uh, we you know we were covering this incredible story. We had the Hobie Baker announcement that night, and uh, Eric right. Hartzell was one of the Hobie Hattrick finalists. I just remember uh, it was an exhausting, exhausting day. Um, you know, given what had happened the night before, given what was going on that day, and given the scope of what was happening and, and the pressure we were all under to really, you know, kind of present this story for what it was. And in my opinion, you know, you, you take New Haven athletics, New Haven sports history, which, you know, because of Yale goes all the way back to the 1800s. And you know, this story was as big, if not the biggest story that, uh, that came out of Greater New Haven in its history. And I just remember feeling a lot, a lot of pressure you know, to make sure that we were producing quality work. Yeah, I remember being really surprised, uh, surprised Excuse me, that Hartzell didn't win that, that Hobie Baker. Drew LeBlanc won it. Um, right, right. And I had actually written a column that night. And again, long day, uh, you know, long night because the announcement didn't come, I think, until 7 o'clock that night. Uh, but I do remember thinking that this is crazy, that, you know, Hartzell was far and away Quinnipiac's best player. Uh, they had posted the nation's best record. They had more wins than anybody else. And it's not like this is a team that was, uh, you know, was coming off a great year. They had been decent the year before. They had been okay. But the jump that they made was incredible. They were the best defensive team in the country, and the reason that they were was because of Hartzell, and I was I was really surprised. And I know goaltenders have a tough time, and they usually get the short end of the stick when it comes to the Hobie Baker Award. So it wasn't totally shocking, but I remember writing a column saying that you know they 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 picked the wrong guy here. That you know Hartzell was Hartzell was the guy who deserved the award that year, in my opinion. Now I obviously I was there as well, uh, but being able to watch the broadcast afterwards. I don't know if you've seen it, but ESPN actually showed uh, Rand Packnold's kind of address to the team. And I this is maybe unfair of me to, to project an opinion based on that 45 seconds or so of video. Uh, but to me, it felt like a team who to some degree felt like they just had to show up and they were going to win the national championship that night. Did you get a little bit of an air of overconfidence from the Quinnipiac side? Uh, I didn't. I didn't get that from talking to those guys the okay. day before. I definitely didn't get that idea. I think that they, you know, that they knew that they were going to have to to, to work, uh, or else you know they were going to be in trouble. At the same time, you know, Quinnipiac had beaten these guys three times. They had beaten them three times pretty easily. Um, you know, I think it would, it's only natural, maybe, for some of those thoughts to, to, to slip into your head. You know, like, we beat these guys, you know, 6-2, we beat them 4-1, to one. we just shut them out last week or whatever it was 10 days ago in the consolation game. Uh, we know what they've got. We know that we're the better team. Um, you know, sometimes that's, uh, that, that's, it's almost impossible, I would think, to keep those thoughts out when you've beaten a team that badly three games in a row, and you know that that's the team that's standing between you and a national championship trophy, and, and you know, you felt all year that you were the best team in the country. Um, you know, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if there was some overconfidence in there, and, and that might have been at the root of their troubles on Saturday, that Saturday there in Pittsburgh. All right, we are going to take another break. When we come back, we will be joined by Andrew Miller and Mitch Wittick.
All right, our next guests are both Yale hockey captains. One from the class of 2013 and one from the class of 2016. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the 2013 captain, Andrew Miller, and the 2016 captain, Mitch Wittick. Andrew, Mitch, thank you so much for doing this. How are you uh, How are you boys doing today? Andrew, how is uh, Charlotte? Uh, it's nice. Unfortunately, I'm I'm out right now, but uh, it's been a rough few weeks with the injury. But uh, nice city, and the weather is phenomenal. So, it's way better than snowy Buffalo right now. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Actually, we got a nice, some nice little beautiful like pre-spring weather here in Buffalo right now. But uh, Mitch, you are in Boston. Yeah, yeah, I'm Boston. Uh, uh, just pushing some rinks. Yeah, why don't you grab me here? Why don't you plug 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 your uh, plug your thing right now? We'll get it right in right off the top. We'll get get a plug out. <laughs> Lay it all out yeah, there. No, no, I'm uh, I'm, I'm working with another Yale kid and a couple of Yale hockey alums, and we're selling rinks. It's called the Easy Ice Rink. Uh, it's a really fantastic product. We're hoping to get some of the young guys like yourself hooked up with rinks moving forward. Is there somewhere people can go for more information about the rinks? You're not kidding. Yeah, you can go to easyicerinks.com. Uh, set these rinks up in under an hour in your own backyard. Anyone can do it. Uh, it's really a long way from the the, the old plywood and uh, stakes and nails method we all grew up doing. All right. So with all that said, it's 2013, and you guys have just beaten North Dakota four to one. One of the best third periods probably in the in the history of Yale hockey. I kind of want to pick up the story there. The The interesting thing about the hockey tournament compared to the basketball tournament and maybe some of the others is obviously after the regional, there's that dead week to kind of let the basketball tournament have that weekend to themselves, I guess, maybe is the logic. I'm not positive. I wonder, Andrew, from your perspective, as you're boarding uh, the plane to go from from Grand Rapids back to school, what are you thinking as the captain about how – what are you thinking about what you're going to need to do and the team in general is going to need to do to kind of be able to stay focused and to kind of burn all that time in between games? I think uh, usually preparation is pretty important for hockey players so you know where you're going to be, when you're going to be there, who you're playing. But with a tournament like that, you, you're not sure if you're going to – going to win and move on or, or lose and kind of have your season over and get back to school or pros or whatever anyone's doing for the next few days but um like you said at the first the first week is a dead week and having two weeks in between is is phenomenal i mean i think it saves you from missing too much school because your the games are on thursday uh for the semifinals i'm pretty sure and uh yep. getting back into into school and then leaving like maybe the next day doesn't make much sense. So um, it was kind of viable for us to get back, uh, enjoy a few nights, um, get some work done, and kind of get on a schedule where we can recover a little bit and then get back to practice. So I think that was very important for us to have two weeks. And um, uh, Coach obviously set up a good week with a few rest days and light practices, but um, kept us in shape for the finals. Mitch, do you think being an Ivy League team and, you know, you guys have that 
that little bit of a longer Christmas break because of finals uh, and obviously some of the Ivy League rules. You think that guy that kind of gave you guys an edge in any in any way compared to the other teams? Kind of like maybe it's not as awkward for you guys to take a little bit of a break during the season like that. Yeah, so I think there's there's some validity to that, mm-hmm. um, but you know at the same time, like we lose a lot of games. Uh, you know, just a lot of actual minutes on the ice that we lose in the beginning of the season that would otherwise be really valuable. So the rest, uh, while helpful, yes, it's also a bit of an obstacle that you need to work to, to overcome, like those lost games and those lost lost minutes of practice. Um, those add up as well. So I'd, I'd almost say it's a, a bit of a wash. bit of a wash. You know, I, I want to ask you while we're here, Mitch, you know, there's three freshman defensemen out of six playing minutes. So many freshmen contributing to this team in general. What do you think it was about you, OG, and and Obukowski? Was there, and maybe it's something different about each of you, but what do you think about the three of you guys and the way you guys contributed and jumped in and, and transitioned so smoothly into college hockey and were able to have – uh, you know, to be able to eat so many minutes with also then a sophomore and Fallon and Duick, the the other the other defenseman. But you know, three three uh, three freshmen. What do you think it was about you three guys and and how you integrated into the team and uh, adjusted so well to college hockey? And were able to play so many minutes. Yeah, great question. So I think the first thing you have to look at is having Red there, uh, a guy that was. In my mind, uh, the most, he was the most influential, knowledgeable coach, uh, knowledgeable defensive coach that I've ever had. Um, and you combine him with Coach Elaine, and that almost, uh, in a way, like elevates, uh, you know, the freshman mindset. Um, just the amount of information that they're throwing you, they, they snap you out of it pretty quickly. And then you look at a guy like Rob. He stepped in. He was ready to play. Yeah, he's played uh, almost 20 games now at the Rangers this year. Just an exceptional player. And when he came in, he was uh, he was just rock solid already. And then Obatowski won, I think it was uh, ECAC Defensive Rookie of the Year, something like that. Uh, won something you know really really special that year. So um, as a unit, young, but the individuals are certainly certainly capable. Andrew, I want to ask you, you know, you had been on a couple of really great Yale teams before 2013. Obviously, uh, two years before this, you guys were the number one overall seed in the tournament. You had won, what, 27 games and and won the ECAC. Was there a sense after, for you, someone who had been through, been through the tournament at least that one time, was there a sense of somewhat, like, kind of relief that you had finally gotten over the hump and won a regional? Absolutely. I mean, just being able to go to the Frozen Four in itself is an awesome experience, and guys who have that opportunity absolutely love it. It's it's a it's a great hockey uh, venue. Always, it's a lot of fun. I mean, your whole school is behind behind you, and your your fans are um, really excited about it. So, I think that was important for us. We had our whole school um, who uh, really enjoyed us being there, and it was a big school event, and for us. To uh, beat those two um, good WCHA teams was was also fun. Um, at the same time, when you when you have a good team and you can 
lose out early in the first or second round. It's, uh, you know, how important each game is. And, um, but you also know that you can win every game. Getting in the tournament is, uh, is tough, but, uh, beating four good teams is, is way harder. So I think our team was, um, was really good at capturing the moment. And, uh, we had a lot of good, a lot of good saves and big goals and, uh, timely plays, which is, which is important. But, um, just being, uh, being able to get to the Frozen Four is a great accomplishment. So once we're in that week, uh, as you talked about earlier, before the before the games, we were able to revamp and um, kind of be able to understand the moment that we were uh, about to have. Let's talk a little bit about your line. I was watching one of the games. I can't remember which one. Cause I, I'd watched all, I've watched all four the last couple of days, but uh, they were talking about uh, the line of of you yourself and Jesse Root and Kenny Agostino, you were on. You had made uh, some kind of unselfish, you know, gesture to move to the wing. Uh, I know that, of course, you would you would that would be true if it were the case. But isn't it more the evolution of that line, uh, more put together? You playing the wing to kind of protect your knee, or do I have that wrong? Like. Why, why the move to wing to to be a part uh, of forming that line? Was it just you know, hey, I can get on the wing here, and um, uh, maybe I won't be center, but we'll be this dynamic line? Or was it uh, Coach Lane, or maybe even yourself saying, you know, this is what's going to be best for me physically and my knee this year, playing playing the wing? Uh, it, it wasn't the knee thing. It, um, it more had to do with the three players that worked worked best together, and also the the lines that worked best together after, um, after us. So, um, slotting different guys in, in different roles was important. And obviously with college, you recruit guys who you think are going to be great college players. And at some point you're going to be stuck with too many left wings or too many right-handed centers, or it's not like the pros where you're looking to sign a, a big left-handed defenseman or a, a smaller skilled centerman. Uh, you're you're kind of left with guys that you have recruited and have been with you for uh, the last few years. So um, we were uh, a group of players that played well together and kind of understood where we were at on the ice. I think we had a little bit of size, grit, um, passion capabilities, and, and some definitely some scoring. So uh, Keith saw that and he wanted to get us together. And I think the most logical was for me to play on the on the right wing. Mitch, what do you remember most about the staff preparing you guys logistically to go to Pittsburgh? I don't necessarily mean, you know, well, in practice we did this to focus on this. I mean, what what went into kind of getting the team ready uh, to head out to Pittsburgh? What do you remember about kind of the logistics of getting ready to go to the Frozen Four? Um, I think is an interesting uh, bit of time there and a, a bit of time to you know try to knock it in your own head about thinking about the Frozen Four and then the coaching staff. Uh, I think that was you know definitely Musi's job at the time. You know, getting out uh, the flight schedules and it was a little bit different. Um, I think he flew out on a Tuesday, practiced out there. Uh, you know, I, I'm not positive. I get that wrong. But I think it was on Tuesday and. Had a practice there the day before. No, does that sound right to you? 
Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely different than going, you know, off the off the street to, to play Quinnipiac. But um, something the other guys mentioned, it was all just every game we approached in the exact same way. So practices were pretty similar. The meals were similar. Uh, you know, the guys who stayed in the hotel were, were, were the same guy. It was just they tried to keep everything as constant as possible. So the logistics line didn't change too much. Mitch, who did you room with on the road? Uh, <laughs> I had a bit of a carriage, so um, whoever thinks they were like my main roommate, they're, they're going to get offended by that. But I had like, <laughs> for whatever reason, I just I bounced around. It was like I was a dude freshman year who I was playing with, and then he graduated by the new guy, and it was just it was all over the place. But this weekend in Pittsburgh, you were with Duick then. Yeah. Yeah. And what was your relationship like with him? How how were things with? With Duick, and what was kind of like the atmosphere in in your room that weekend? Uh, it was good. So the the biggest thing that I you know learned from Duick, and something I carried on throughout, was he was a real stay at home, solid defenseman. And uh, particularly that year, Duick and I were the third pair, and we knew what our role was. And our role was uh, to not get scored on and to to get pucked out. And so. It was a nice little mold for me to look at him and say, okay, that's something that I can uh, aspire to be and, and develop into. Um, and it was nice to have that every day in practice. Do you remember what you did the night before, thir- Wednesday night uh, before the game? Uh, I mean- uh, got, got to bed super early. Yeah. <laughs> and then coaching all stress and sleep, so lights are off at yeah, 10 o'clock and you're, you're battling to get to bed. Andrew, who'd you room with? My roommate was the great and famous Josh Bolch. Um, I was probably the luckiest guy in the world to have him as a roommate. So if anyone has got to experience a, a dinner or a meeting with Josh Bolch, it's it's quite an honor. <laughs> and what did you guys do Wednesday night? Do you remember the atmosphere in the room as you're getting ready to uh, to kind of wind down and, and get ready for Thursday? Uh, I don't remember exactly, but we probably made a bunch of stupid jokes about each other and uh, watched some sports and called it a night. Thursday, the game, you guys play the earlier game, and it's not quite as early as the Minnesota game, but it's still earlier than what you guys are kind of used to. Are either of you guys really routine-driven guys who are maybe bothered by the earlier time or are both of you guys kind of just like whatever time the game is, I'll get my, I'll get my pregame shit in and be ready. Or I, I think it was uh, Jesse who was, who was joking in the first part about how, you know, nine o'clock in the morning he was, he was stuffing uh chicken pasta down his throat. Probably wasn't quite as early as the game was a little bit later this time around, but uh, what do you guys remember about the earlier game and how that might've reflected either of your routines? I think for the most part, a game like that is completely adrenaline. Uh, personally, I have trouble getting to sleep before big games the night before. So um, that's important for me. But a game like that, especially the whole weekend, all of us were just running on adrenaline. It wasn't, uh, definitely didn't mess me up. I, I felt great and um, I wasn't too worried about the whole process. Being able to jump on the ice in the early game is nice because you're not watching a game before you and having nerves because the crowd's into that game and you're so you kind of lose some energy focusing on that a little 
bit and get a little more nervous. I think the more time you wait, the worse it is. So it's nice to get that first game out of the way. What about for you, Mitch? Yeah, I'm with I'm with uh, Andrew there. Like it, once you get out there, uh, it just got all gets thrown out the window. So annoying to eat chicken and pasta at 10 a.m. But when it comes to the actual game, I definitely definitely didn't, didn't throw me off personally, at least. When you you know, I don't think you guys played. I know you guys played BC during the season and really had a fantastic game against them, probably should have won it. I think it ended up being a 3-3 tie, but it's definitely a game you guys should have won. What about playing the Hockey East regular season and playoff champion? When they drop the puck and the game starts, do you notice anything about um, about them, about their style? Is there anything that catches you guys off guard or anything that really plays out exactly the way you thought? What was it, What was the experience like? kind of just from a conference perspective and being out there against the Hockey East team? For that game, it was a little different because we'd just come off of two games against you know, the, the high draft pick teams. I, I think Kenny called them the WNHL. Which yes, that was awesome. awesome. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> just, just awesome. So we played these guys, and their style was uh, was totally different. So they played, uh, as far as I can recall, a style that was really similar to ours. Um, they had Hellebuck and Nat who had like a, uh, it was like a 950, something insane. And so they were more structurally sound, more defensively sound, um, in the same way that, uh, you know, like Coach Lane's going to rip your head off, you turn a puck over the blue line trying to dangle somebody. Like that was, that was their mindset too. So, uh, definitely a different style of play. And I think that one, you know, is one that we were more, comfortable seeing because we faced it all year in the ECAC. Andrew, were you at all surprised how much faster it seemed like your team speed was when theirs once the game started going? Uh, maybe a little bit surprised, yeah. Um, I think our team was, was fast and um, they played the right way and um, guys were were tough to play against. That was, that was the main um, aspect of our team, but I think as the game started and um, got going a little bit, I think I was surprised at how well we were doing. Um, I thought that game was probably our best game of the tournament and uh, maybe a while, but a lot of it is matchup based and it's a lot of how fast we played and um, some of the decisions that we made. So they get a couple. Obviously, Malks is. Sorry. No, that's okay. Uh, I, I was going to get right to Malks because they did get a couple early chances. And uh, Malcolm did stand tall on them. And then, Mitch, you can walk us through it, but I think what I recall, it's 0-0. You get the puck at the point. You got a little space. You wind up, huge clapper, bar down in, one nothing. right? Is that <laughs> how you remember it as well? That's, or, or you yeah, walk that's us, exactly how it happened. Yeah, walk us, and, uh, walk us through the first goal. So, I hopped off the bench at the end of a power play. Yeah, I don't know why the coaches didn't have me out there in the power play, but. And I get out there and there's a bump, bumbling puck coming to me. And I think it was Coop that passed it. Uh, I closed my eyes, put on net. Kenny was in front, laid a screen. And Hellebuck just didn't see it. And it took, uh, it was, it's a Coop screaming at me to make me realize I scored. And, it was uh, my only goal in the season and, and just couldn't have come at a, a better time. 
really. Yeah, I remember uh, we were watching the game today. There's a kind of a shot, the look on your face. You can tell that you're surprised the puck went in the net. Like, you can see it in your face. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's like a couple people in the way, which ultimately was, was why it went in. There was, uh, you know, there was one guy coming out to block it. And like I said, Kenny was right in front of his eyes. And so it was just, it was just hard to track. Uh, hard to track for me because there were guys there and hard to track for Hellebuck and sometimes those are the ones that that get in it's not always you know the pretty ones so um, honestly grateful as cliche as it sounds like you know grateful to have those grateful to Kenny in front of the net and Coop getting me that puck on the point without those two plays like that that's definitely not going in and we're not going up on nothing it's one of those goals that every year it gets a little sweeter it starts out where you, you you're describing it pretty honestly, but then like by like the fifteenth year celebration, you're gonna go right in with yeah that it was about a ninety seven mile an hour slapper and you know he saw it all the way, but it's clean right over his shoulder. It's one of those it's one of those kind of goals. Andrew, Andrew yeah, I sent out. Go ahead. Yeah, I sent out enough snaps at this point. Whenever he has a good game or something, just laughing about how I, I ripped him bar down because he's tearing off in the showdown. That's, it's already that story. It's already the <laughs> bar down block time. What do you remember about this goal, Andrew? Um, I think I think we were putting a lot of pressure on him early, and we had a lot of opportunities. And um, Mitch had a good, quick shot through, and um, definitely through traffic. But um, a lot of those a lot of those opportunities are caused by a few plays that happened before, and um, him being in the right spot and getting a quick shot off, which was obviously very important and it led to uh, some good things for the rest of the game. That's for sure. You guys really control the play after the goal. You're really pressing, really pressing again. And then you break through for the second goal late in the period. It's it's Antoine Lagunier who gets the goal. And uh, I thought a strength of, of this team, in my opinion, was how well uh, when you'd get into a period like that where Keith could just go one after another line-wise. And it was just... Each line was so relentless, and um, I think that that was kind of this was kind of an example of that where you're just coming at him in waves, and um, finally uh, Lags breaks through, pounding. Uh, I want to say a Killian shot um, um, back in. Uh, what do you guys remember about the goal, uh, Mitch? You want to start off what you recall about the second goal? Yeah, I remember Killian dangling somebody to get to the yeah. net. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. You know, do you remember Killian just got moved to forward and he dangled that guy? I remember Killian was not in the lineup often, and he made a pretty poised play with his head up to get the puck to the net. It was uh, it was a pretty phenomenal play. I remember him coming around through the corner, and um, instead of just getting it off his stick, he made a, a solid move to get some space, and Flags used his big body to kind of get the rebound, and he had a quick stick and definitely good hand-eye. So it's two to nothing after one. What do you guys remember about going into the locker room? I mean, you couldn't have really played a better period. I mean, to be honest, I, I know, like from my perspective as a fan, I was thinking like, "Wow, we are the better team by a lot here." Uh, Andrew, as the captain, how do you kind of approach uh, going into the locker room with like that? Do you kind of feel like? Wow, this almost went too well. I got to get in there and make sure everyone is grounded still. Or just take me into the locker room a little bit. I mean, what was it like after that first period, as best as you can remember? I'm not. 
I don't remember much in between periods, but um, a lot of Mitch can talk to this as well. But a lot of my mo is to make sure guys are are keeping keeping the pace and and being relentless. I think that was a major aspect of our team. We we kept putting pucks to the net. We kept doing what we do well, and um, that's a recipe for success. And uh, there's been times where we've played good games and, and lost, and um, I kind of was aware that um, it's not always the best team, and it's the team that has the most timely goals. So I figured if we were able to be the better team for a higher percentage throughout the game, we'd, we'd have a better chance to win. So um, at that point, it was kind of just playing our game, which we had played for most of the season with, with some lapses, but um, making sure guys were being consistent in how they played and what they did was very important for us, I think. So the second period, there's a really interesting moment that we can talk about for a second. So in the regular season, when Malcolm got hurt, I think it was against Princeton, to play where someone kind of crashes into him, uh, kind of takes him out, takes his legs out from underneath him. He gets injured. There's a similar play in this game. I don't know if you guys remember it, but I remember like not being able to breathe for five minutes. Like the guy went in, took his legs out. It looked so similar to the play he got hurt, and I was a nervous wreck. What do you guys remember about about Malx getting getting uh getting his legs swept out and um and the feeling at that moment? Um, I think now we just absolutely laugh about it and love giving him a hard time about it. <laughs> I think that was that was pretty great <laughs> when your number one goalie gets smoked on a breakaway. Um, a guy going full speed, that's that's not a great thing. Um, but some of those you end up and a goalie gets, gets tapped a little bit off balance, they're not ready for it, and they end up getting injured because um, they're not ready for the hit. But I think he was prepared enough for it to where he could brace himself or put himself in a position where he wasn't getting totally, um, I guess, blocked enough to where he could still move and avoid a little bit. The listeners in part four will be able to hear Malcolm talk about this play and also kind of talk about how right around then is when they the 14-second period where they get the two goals. And, and he kind of talked about how that second one, he, he'd still kind of like that one back and, and even admitted that maybe um, he, he didn't quite have his composure back yet um, from, from getting his legs taken out from him. But what about for you guys? What was... Uh, do you remember anything about either of their goals? Um, and, and do you remember how you felt on the bench after it's like you, you've dominated this game, you got them right where you want them, and then just like a blink, it's two to two, and uh, and, and and it's it's a, it's it's a new game again, and they got they got to be you know just buzzing on their bench like wow we've been getting our, the shit kicked in here, and all of a sudden we're the team with the mo. Uh, so there's a lot there to to kind of uncover. I probably, if I was a little bit better interview, would have broken it, separated all that a little bit. But uh, Mitch, why don't you start off uh, if you can even remember um, everything I just said there? Yeah, yeah. So, well, uh, first thing, I, I don't feel like that guy that hit Malice is going like full speed, right? He was flying. Yeah, it's like the kid from Miami and Mighty Ducks. It was like kind of like one of those. Yeah. Because <laughs> like he tried to put a move on, lost it, and just crashed into him. So I wouldn't be surprised if he was like a, you know, there, there's definitely some legitimacy to him saying it was a little off 
for those goals. But the first one, uh, the first one went off of like one of our guys, right? I feel like it went off of either like Rob or Yarn or someone, and it was just kind of fluky. Uh, yeah, that's right. And then the second one, right? And then the yeah. second one just happened so quickly after it. Uh, yeah, honestly, like I, I don't think, and just one man's opinion, I'll say, like, I don't think we were rattled at all because we're outplaying them by such a wide margin, like just out shooting them. Uh, had more offensive zone time, like whatever kind of metric you want to look at, I feel like we were just dominating. And so, yeah, they get two quick goals, but I, I think it was a pretty composed, confident bench. Andrew, as captain, after those two goals, do you feel like you need to say anything to settle the team down at all? Is there anything that you feel like you need to do at that point, or is it just go out, have another shift, and just keep this thing rolling, we're, fu- we're fine? I think the feeling on the team, for the most part, is that we were, we were doing well and we were dominating. And uh, if we kept playing the way we were playing, uh, we would most likely win. Um, obviously, the those two goals were um, really changed the game, even though we were out playing them. But just being a part of comebacks on both ends of third period, up by a lot or down by a lot, and being able to come back um, in games that I've played in. There's there's usually a feeling when when your team is winning, but the team knows that they shouldn't really be be on top or they're being outplayed drastically. That once that game tying goal happens, you know that another one's probably going to come if if the the game continues the way it is. But we were at the point where we were we were definitely playing well, and I think uh, just letting the team know that. Um, we were the better team, and we were um, we were outplaying them. It was uh, important just to make sure guys were were aware of that. And um, I think the feeling amongst the team is uh, that we were able to keep going to where we were and um, and play hard enough um, to the point of giving us a chance to win. And despite those fourteen seconds, the domination just continued, and it. I mean, it was crazy in the third period. They don't get a shot the last nine minutes of the third period. We have to go to overtime, and, and eventually in overtime, they don't get a shot in the la- in the in all seven minutes. So it's about 16 minutes straight without them getting a shot. Uh, but you guys have played so well, uh, you know, minus 14 seconds. What's the mood like in the locker room in between the uh, in between the uh, the third period and overtime? And do you guys think? having just experienced it in the Minnesota game in the regional, was that a little bit, a little bit of a, an advantage for you? Did that help at all? Um, having already, having already had yourself in your stall during the national tournament after a third period waiting for an overtime in a game where you blew a two goal lead, uh, blow it. I mean, that, that sounds harsher than I mean it, but, uh, what do you guys think about, about that that time as you wait to start overtime. So one one memory I have of that that locker room uh, was uh, coach came in and gave you know his his speech and uh, outside of the analysis, which I you know have trouble remembering, he said something of the essence like Hellebuck is 
carried his team for a lot of this year. He's carried his team for a lot of tonight. Like, let's put him out of his misery. Let's just, it's our turn to just end it. And I had no surprise that that's some of that stuck because it was, it was really timely and really awesome. And that was the feeling in the locker room was like, this guy's just, like 50 shots or something that day and he was just standing on his head and it's like okay what's well, it's time really it's just it's just it's just time to end this anything to add on that uh, part, part of my memory yeah part of my memory from the, the weekend is how hard the games were i think teams were playing so hard and physical and um moving their legs all over the ice that um it was an exhausting game i think for everyone involved and um when that happens, you can definitely lose focus for a little bit. So I think guys making sure that they're doing the right things and um, consistently playing um, with with the passion that they had in the first three periods was important. And secondly, positivity. And once your mind kind of goes astray, astray in a negative way, I think you lose a lot of focus. And uh, being positive amongst the locker room is definitely the best way to be. And guys were definitely playing a little bit out of fear not losing and, um, um, and mainly out of desire to win. Uh, those last, I think, uh, 15 minutes of the third period, you could really kind of see it from our team that they were playing well. and um, They were giving up their all with, uh, without making many mistakes, and I think that was important as well because um, one one puck that ricochets off a, off a body into the net or, or one bad pass can uh, result in your season being over, and I think our team really took that to heart and uh, played the right way. And obviously um, we're able to do some great things. Well, Jesse shared with us in the, in the postscript to the interview I did with him uh, that a shoulder injury and the heat in the rink result in him cramping up and his legs lock up. He jumps off the rink and Carson Cooper jumps on the rink. Andrew, take me through that shift everything you can remember about it right up until you get to being right in front of Holy Buck, then stop. So take me from the, the from Jesse jumping off Carson coming on to forehand pause. Yeah. Jesse, Jesse was struggling a few minutes before and I think Coop was ready to take a few shifts with us. Um, and I know he is cramping and he was, he was definitely battling defensively. Um, just definitely had to skate a little bit harder than Kenny and I did uh, because of his effort defensively uh, in our zone. But, uh, Coop was able to jump on. And I think the main, main aspect of the, the play was, uh, that their D backed off pretty well. And I kind of, there's, there's a time, uh, when you have the puck where you either need to make a decision that you're going to be able to get a rot get around these guys or you got to slow up and make a pass and use your, use your teammates. And uh, Coop made a good play through the middle. And at that time I kind of knew that my speed compared to his was, was a lot bigger. So I'd be able to kind of get around him and uh, hopefully get a good opportunity at that point. So you kind of pick up speed through the neutral zone, you get around him. And now you get to the point where you're coming from the right towards the middle. And this is a guy who, who's made 50 saves. He's having a great game. What are what what's your split second thought process there? You can take us from there now to right before you get down on your knee in the corner. 
So pause right at that point. I think when I uh, when I get around someone, um, then I start thinking more um, about the goalie. I think that's me personally. I'm, I'm sure other guys are able to do both at one time. But when I'm around them, I think um, usually when my mind takes over and when I think too much, then I'm, I'm not able to put a good move and I hesitate. But I think there with speed, um, I'm naturally used to getting around their far pad on the on the, uh, I guess, blocker side on most goalies. So um, in that kind of split second when I got uh, lateral, I was able to kind of see five a little bit. I knew since he was a good goalie, he would be able to challenge high. Um, going glove is, is usually my favorite on that side. But um, since I knew he was going to be able to challenge and he's a good goalie, definitely good enough to be able to push from post to post quickly. Um, that I kind of had to be quick and a little deceptive. And most goalies, when they push, they leave their stick out a little bit. And five hole was was definitely uh, the open option there. So you go forehand, backhand, five hole, game over, right into the bow and arrow. Talk to us about the celebration. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's I don't know if that's something I've ever done really, but it's kind of. Uh, kind of thought of at the moment and um uh, it was kind of reactionary and um i know i kind of smoked the rough if he kind of got in the way but <laughs> i was more happy that we were we had definitely won the game at that point we were moving on which uh is something that i'll definitely remember for the rest of my life mitch what do you remember about the goal i i, I think andrew you need to give yourself some more credit on the speed you had there you were flying yeah and you got around him, and I, I think it was just your speed that might have caught him off guard a little bit and made him uh, and made him like spread like that. And then after the Sally, if that was a goal scorer's Sally, like, <laughs> just right along the wall. Uh, I, there were so many pictures on the internet of that afterwards. It's like just as far as like you know, the hockey moments go, like that that moment, and then like that picture even afterwards is just iconic it was there, there was no one uh like more deserving or like more fitting to score that goal and then to score it in a really sick fashion it was just it was just an iconic heel hockey moment so and sort of symbolically you guys just happened to score in front of the quinnipack fans right i mean my uncle for a long time had a picture on his computer his wallpaper was a picture of this celebration with this one guy in the Quinnipiac in a Quinnipiac jersey giving you guys the finger, right? So you guys are having this awesome oh. celebration, the whole team together, except for one kiss ass stays on the bench and, and hugs the coach. What 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 what? what, what I've definitely seen pictures of that. What's going on there? What I, I don't know what if either of you guys want to take that, but I mean, is is someone maybe angling for more time in the in the more ice time in the championship game maybe looking for a letter like who stays on the bench to hug the coach after an OT goal i don't think i've seen this before or since i don't know just a good guy i guess <laughs> i think the coach needs someone to celebrate too and everyone else is thinking about themselves and people on the ice and anthony obviously had some uh, excitement there on the bench i think he jumped about 10 feet in the air okay so andrew's being a nice captain and giving him a pass but you're going to bust his balls right mitch yeah, I, I think it might just be a rumor, but I, Coach might have a picture of that moment in his, like on his desk or something. Yeah, right? his Maybe office, that's just days are telling me that story. But. So it's not 
It's not, uh, he wasn't blowing smoke when he, he mentioned that. <laughs> he actually has that picture of, I don't know, it's unbelievable, but yeah, I don't know, I don't know what he was doing. That's definitely something uh, you got to ask Anthony about because uh, this is, he's had a strange reaction to turn around and, and, uh, jump two feet in the air to argue coach, but <laughs> it was a pretty, pretty cool moment. The, uh, the, a funny, uh, postscript to that is that, um, in all of my brother's time as a Yale hockey player, Keith Elaine talked to my mom one time, and it, they ran into each other the next day somewhere. I don't remember exactly where. And Keith said to my mom, you know, your son really mauled me last night. So <laughs> there, there entails the entire communication in my brother's four years at, at Yale between my mom and Coach Elaine. So. Yeah, days are, days are hard to him for sure. <laughs> uh Absolutely. Andrew, it's an unbelievable moment. It's one of the great moments in program history. There was a great yell turnout. We're going crazy. I think it's your brother's got a giant Andrew Miller head that's that's in the crowd. It's just unreal. But you didn't go there for that, right? So how do you how do you and Mitch, you can jump in on this then too, like how do you adjust from the highs of winning that game to the reality of, okay, now we need to prepare for the biggest game of our lives? Yeah, that's tough. I mean, adrenaline-wise, it's it's not easy to come down from that and get back to normalcy. We uh, definitely had uh, or definitely took advantage of the day off that we had in between. I think there was some media stuff the next day, but being able to um, know you're moving on and as you said earlier, the earlier game, we're done by maybe 7.30. Um, that gives us a little bit of extra time to get to sleep and kind of uh, visit with our families and settle down. And we use that wisely. So um, adrenaline was definitely pumping through our team. and um, But we also had a sense of not really being done and kind of wanting to take advantage of whoever we were playing uh, and uh, see if we could keep it going. Uh, a nice blend of excitement and like, obviously you're going to lose your mind to some extent after that goal. And in that moment, uh, you know, by the time you're headed to total that night, you're already thinking about uh, two days from now and Saturday. So um, quick, quick turnaround for sure. Were you guys glad it was Quinnipiac? Uh, I was for sure. Uh, especially just to get some redemption because they'd, they'd beaten us a couple of times that, that year and, uh, it was just, you know, it was nice redemption in that sense, and it made just an incredible storyline. He's playing the guys right up the street, um, so I was, I was personally happy. Absolutely. What about you, Andrew? Um, it was. I, I don't really remember much from from the uh, end of the first game to the beginning of the second. Um, I know we all we all had our family there, and it was important for our, um, for us to see our family after and kind of enjoy with the fans who all had traveled there. So um, it was a day, a couple of days of adrenaline. And I remember watching the game after um, the following game of St. Cloud and Quinnipiac, and I personally wanted to play St. Cloud. I mean, we lost to Quinnipiac three times pretty decisively before. Hmm. So. Um, I definitely wanted to play St. Cloud, but um, obviously that was not not what happened. All right, so there's a postscript to this. 
that we have to talk about before I let you guys go. The goal that's obviously known as Kenny Agostino's 100th point. Andrew, let's walk me through your your breakaway goal. And you haven't gotten to hear Chip's part of this from the New Haven Register, which you recorded. But he kind of dropped a story about how just a couple days before, Hartzell had talked about how you had had some chances on him and he was kind of owning you with his glove hand and just kind of how he felt confident um, playing against you because he had had that success. And he also said that a couple times you guys had went through the to the handshake line and allegedly, you know, you said, um, you know, good game or something, but I hate you. Um, uh, you want to confirm or deny uh, Chip's recollection of his interview with Hartzell there and um, – and, uh, you know, did you feel like it was a goalie that kind of had your number? Um, I think in general their team had our number. I know I'm pretty good friends with the Jones brothers now. And uh, I think in the game at Quinnipiac, one of them turned the puck over on the power play. And I had a breakaway. And Hartzell made a good glove save. But um, I would always chat with a bunch of their guys, um, mainly Hartzell. And things would get heated, but... Um, I think we had a good relationship, and he would kind of mock me a little bit when he'd make a good save. And uh, he he seemed like a good good guy, and um, obviously had our number at the beginning of the season. So um, it's definitely important to uh, get on him early. And they uh, they were a good defensive team. And I think that's kind of what um, made their team great that year is that they, as a whole, were really tough to get opportunities on. And, well- when we did get opportunities on them, they they often made or Hartzell often made big saves. So one of the Jones loses a battle to Kenny on the wall. Ken says he hears you call for it, slides it between the guys, and you got a breakaway, pretty much from the red line in. Take us through it again. Another another breakaway, but um, when I don't think and when I'm reactionary instead of trying to just decide a move before I get to the goalie is is when I'm at my best and um, having that much time is, is good and bad, I guess. Um, being able to uh, position yourself in the, um, in the right way is, is great. So I was able to get over a little bit to the left, uh, giving myself kind of a stick and puck in the middle of the ice instead of my body, get a little bit better angle. And I saw him challenge, um, and back up, which is usually he, he matched my speed pretty well, which is usually a good sign that he's going to make a save on either a, a high glove or, or a, a deke, especially since he's matched our speed or my speed. So a little quick shot five hole um, put him off guard a little bit, and I was able to find the back of the net. Um, it was a little bit too late, and uh, it was good placement on my part, I think. After the game, and, and Mitch, I don't know if you've you've gotten to see this watching the broadcast back or not, but Andrew gives one of the most legendary on ice interviews of all time to, I think his name is Clay Matvick, where he drops, we're national champions maybe four times in 30 seconds. Uh, what do you remember about the, uh, about the post game interview with Clay? And um, were you making a point of some kind by saying we're national champions over and over again like that? Or was it just, kind of the emotion you were feeling at the time uh well it was <laughs> i mean it's tough to do an interview at that point 
to be honest. Um, we've gone through so, so much and um, all the things going around, um, going around you, it's, it's tough with the excitement. But I think the main thing that uh, all the questions leading up to the tournament and um, and uh, all the, uh, I guess, accusations were that you were kind of the last team to make the tournament and you guys don't really belong here. So I think it was, it was important kind of the way we played was to show teams that we were just as good as any other team there. And um, we had something uh, special with our team, especially because a lot of teams in the ECAC don't really get as much credit because they're in a smaller league. Um, the teams and schools aren't as big, so there's not enough fan um, craziness and um, and support like uh, throughout the country from big schools like Minnesota or, or UNH or um, BCPU. They're in hockey hotbed, so Quinnipiac and Yale are uh, definitely smaller schools and don't have as much notoriety, but playing the ACAC is a tough league, so being able to win out of that the national championship out of that league kind of proves that our, our league and our teams um, are just as good as any others in the nation. You remember this interview, mentioned? Do you remember Andrew declaring Yale the champions of the Capital One Cup? Uh, I think uh, Mr. Matvik congratulated you on earning points for it, and Andrew said, yes, we are the Capital One champions. Thank you, basically. Uh, do you remember this uh, awesome interview, Mitch? <laughs> I, no, I definitely I should go watch it again, but uh, it feels like just getting getting right to the point, telling what they wanted to hear. <laughs> well, listen, guys, this was awesome. It was so fun to relive what was maybe the best team game in, in the tournament. I mean, you guys played an unbelievable game, and obviously, without uh, Connor Hellebuck, we might have been taught we might have spent twenty minutes talking about a six nothing game or something like that. I mean, it's just an unbelievable game. Is there anything either you guys want to add about? about this game or the experience in general? No, I'm, I'm good. You covered a, a ton. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, Andrew Miller, it's a pleasure. And next yeah, time I, I see you, buddy, it's it's Paula Donuts on me. What about you, Mitch? Uh, perfect. i just just really excited to hear the other other parts of the, uh, the series to follow. And thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, boys. Hopefully I'll, I'll see or talk to you both, uh, both soon. All right. Thanks. I want to thank again Andrew Miller and Mitch Wittick for joining us today. also want to thank Chip from the New Haven Register for jumping out again. That's three parts of this story in the books. Yale has beaten Minnesota, the number two overall seed in the tournament. They've beaten North Dakota. They've beaten the Hockey East regular season and playoff champion Massachusetts Lowell. And on Thursday... Part four, the conclusion of this series, and it's a special one. So here's what we have for part four. Celebrating his 24th birthday that night was goaltender Jeff Malcolm. Uh, Jeff will join us in part four to discuss his shutout. Also that night, Gus Young 
uh, made an unbelievable play uh, to pinch down the wall and get a shot on net that was tipped in by Clinton Burbank uh, to change the game. Gus Young will join us. So Gus, Gus, and also Jeff will be on. We might mix some more chip in. I will have one last thing. And after the guys, the only real way to end this and to, to do it right, in my mind, was to have Keith Elaine. And I'm very proud uh, right now to announce that we made that happen. I actually recorded it with Coach Elaine today. It's, uh, it's 40 minutes of him breaking down the uh, tournament with me. Uh, it was an absolute uh, honor uh, to be able to to talk to Coach. Uh, I hadn't really spoken with him much over the years, to be honest, and it was a, it was an honor uh, to have the chance to to-, to talk to Keith Elaine today. So this is what we have for part four: Jeff Malcolm, Gus Young, maybe some more Chip, definitely Keith Elaine. And I'll end it with one last thing. Thanks to everyone who's been on the show so far. Thanks to everyone who's listening. I hope you're enjoying it. We'll see you in a couple days for part four.